So, Josie Long, we've done this is our 11th latitude together, isn't it? Is this 11th? Yeah. Was the first one 2005? Uh, it was 2006. Ten years ago. Oh, yeah, ten years. We've yeah, got, it's yeah, bookended. Yeah. I was really thinking about that. When I got here, I was just telling Trent, um, who's our boss of yeah. the podcast, I was just... Um, wasn't that year something special? It was really was special. We, we compared a late night gig, uh, Robin and I. Robin compared most days, and then I did one day that you couldn't do. Yeah. And uh, I came on as different characters. Yeah. I remember that. And all of... like. So many friends were there. It was such. It was so packed full of comedians that we all still know and love as well. But maybe it's harder for us all to get together now. So I think it's not. I think it is. It, obviously, all these festivals are much bigger and they're very different. But that year yeah. it was it was Joanna Neary. It was Martin White Izzy. was there. Izzy Sutty and Puppies. Neil Edmond yeah. making up all of this stuff. But the uh, it's been a pity to only have you for a few hours. So it meant that we didn't have you for the David Bowie panel I know, last I'm night. Sad to have missed it. And I was going to ask you where because. For me, it was uh, just one of the most remarkable... I've remembered where my celebrity deaths were, by the way. I was putting in some stickers from an RAF Hendon sticker book when I found out Elvis Presley had died. <laughs> uh, I think it was the day after I'd accidentally stabbed Robert Boughton in the hand uh, in Art Club that I was doing Art Club uh, where I found out John Lennon died. Do you know, when I found out that, I found out that Elvis was dead, it was very formative for me because I didn't understand about death and we watched when I was about five or six we watched a film with Elvis in it young Elvis looking absolutely delightful and I was sort of trying to chat to my mum I was like well where's Elvis now like can we meet him you know and my mum was like no no that's a very old film and Elvis is an old man and Elvis died and me and my sister were just distraught like we couldn't bear the thought that something so beautiful as young Elvis had succumbed to ageing and death. It was just too much. I love that that moment of films of realising the fiction, like my my grandmother when she wasn't uh, in the best of health and was living with us, uh, and I had to sleep under some bookshelves, which I think is how this whole story <laughs> bibliophile life is. But um, she watched The Day of the Dolphin, which is a film all about a talking dolphin with George C. Scott, partly based on some research where they tried to make a dolphin talk, but this is like going to be turned into a super spy and eventually a kind of uh, uh, a, a, a dolphin to be used in acts of war. A sad arc for a dolphin's it was, life. It was a sad, but by uh, the wonderful uh, God, who was it? Um, who made uh, graduate Mike? Uh, oh, I wish I could tell you, Mike Nichols. Yeah, one of his films. And my and, and my grandmother was getting all upset about the talking dolphin. And my dad went, "Well, don't be silly, Mum. It's uh, it doesn't really talk." And she was furious. <laughs> what do you mean a dolphin doesn't really talk? <laughs> so as we're on talking dolphins, we're going to segue awkwardly. To... I know you were telling me more about where you were when. Oh well, then died. David Bowie was just. I'd all that happened was I spent the entire weekend listening to Bowie, and I'd gone to bed listening to Station to Station, and then this brilliant version of Panic in Detroit that's on live at NASA, which is amazing. It's about eleven and a half minutes long and so I went to sleep listening to that and then the very first words that I heard in the morning my wife just walking in and going "Um, David Bowie's died and you go "Uh, no no he hasn't no 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 because the work he's created is so magical and wonderful and such a spell and it's like the greatest work that he's done for ages much as I love the next day as well but Black Star was the the moment you started to say to people have you seen the video yet have you seen this Um, so we, we did a little panel last night about kind of art and shamanism and, and the importance of, of Bowie. What did it int- introduce, to, introduce to the listeners who's on the panel who's going to be speaking? Oh, that, that's all going to happen later on, oh, don't worry. Too. Holly McNeish was fantastic oh, because Holly was, was like, I don't really know anything about David Bowie. What are you lot talking about, you old people? Uh, so she, she, you will hear more of that later on. Um, but I wondered what, 
because Hunky Dory was where it began for me. That was my sister's had Hunky Dory, and it was an amazing album with Kooks on it and Quicksand, all these things. What did Bowie mean to you? When I was 15 years old, and uh, my first boyfriend, my second boyfriend, let's be real, um, <laughs> me, and I should say his full name, but I guess I won't. Yeah. David Bowie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. He might have married now, so he'll have taken his wife's name. Well, if there's yeah. any justice in this world. And he and I would sit together and in his mum's basement and steal her records. And so we would play, just play um, Space Oddity over and over again. That's what we would play the whole time. That is still, that's something that I don't miss because I still do it, but not as much. But when you are a, a youth, kind of almost surreptitiously, playing just the few records that you have the yes. things that in your, and, and it does become kind of totemistic the whole thing we've just played that song over and over again and he would say to me things like i've eclipsed bowie now <laughs> because he was 16 years old and he thought he was hot shit and so that entire but um that entire album especially it's like even just talking about it it's like i'm sat there already thinking about it which i know is like and then you know later on you play things that, well, you just pick up more and become less of like just playing hits, I suppose. But when, I don't know, when I was 15, it was really genuinely astonishing to me, like eye-openingly exciting to me, even See, I, in 1997. I, 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 Years, 20 years. I would have been about 13, I suppose, when I went down at our price and got a, for some reason it was in the sale, the cassette of Low. And Low is is still one of my favourite albums. I love Low. When I was 14, I bought... I bought one of the ones from the 80s. Which one did I buy? Everything will be all right tonight. Was it that one or Let's Dance or Never Let Me Down? It was not Let's Dance. I wish it was Let's Dance. Could it be Never Let Me Down? Maybe. Oh, God. I, I bought it on cassette like? tape. It was black and white. Oh, well, I can't think of one that was black and white, but I would oh, imagine God, I feel, it would probably Also, never, I feel genuinely frightened kind of to talk about thing. David Bowie because, like, it's one of those things where... You get that massive anxiety of like, I'm going to say something wrong, like because I obviously don't like him as much as everyone else does. Which Your is impersonation nonsense. of Holly McNeese, there, by the way, is, is that exact. That's well, exactly I did the same as her. Yeah. That wasn't an impersonation of her. That was just. No, I know, but, but it I, was. It. Do you know that pressure when something's so culturally revered and you're just so frightened that you're going to put a foot wrong that actually you end up sounding like you don't know it when when you love it? <laughs> that's how I am. Well, that's a lot what of the time. When someone said to me, I wrote, I wrote a kind of a post after he died, that thing where you just. Want to get some of your ideas out and kind of you know trepan your, your skull and everything and uh, and I said I should make it clear I'm, I, I wasn't a fan I just owned everything that he ever brought out yeah. if you see what because yeah. there is a, a kind of a crossover point so anyway so David Bowie because this my love for you oh, oh my god that's the thing if you start to deal with things like that all the joy is removed from them and, yeah. it, and the joy is not about the fact that you know exactly oh Josie doesn't know anything about the release date of the first David oh, Bowie live don't. album don't. doesn't even know what kind of car Tony Visconti had in 1978 well, right? everyone knows he had a Cortina but don't be stupid I don't know that I just second think. car I meant his main car, <laughs> the, uh, the the Peugeot. Totally spare car. Yeah. Uh, can you, I bet you can do a good impression of David. Well, I, 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 I can do one of Tony Visconti's car starting because Eddie Large taught me how to do that. <laughs> but I, I was going to say Space Oddity. The, one of my favourite versions is the one done by uh, um, the Langley School's Music Project, where See, which is so. I find them too haunting. 
I can't oh, bear to really listen haunting. to them. But it's the bit where it goes, boo, 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 and then it suddenly hits a cymbal clash, which is just slightly out, and that's what makes it beautiful. So this is the conversation that we had uh, at about 11.30 at night on the uh, Latitude Literary Stage with Daisy Harris, John Constable, Andrew O'Neill, and Holly McNish. So we have with us a group of people who, uh, as I said, they are artists, they are creators, some of them also dabble in ritual magic. Please welcome to this stage uh, a probably my favourite steampunk anarchist of 2016. He's just been touring the United States of America. Please welcome from the men who won't be blamed for nothing, will not be blamed for nothing, Andrew O'Neill. Please also welcome shaman, bowie maniac, John Crow, a.k.a. John Constable. And please also welcome uh, the person who created a wonderful play about the work of Robert Anton Wilson, the Cosmic Trigger play. Please welcome Daisy Eris. Uh, we also, by the way, were meant to have Holly McNeish, but uh, like poets do late on a Friday, I think she went drinking. So, Holly McNeish might be on at some point. Um, oh, are you here? Oh, brilliant. Hi, Holly McNeish. I can see why you've taken a while, because you've done your makeup. Holly McNeish! No, you look fantastic. You look, this is, uh, so Holly McNeish, uh, and you are playing the poetry stage tomorrow. Have you got a mic? There should oh. be a... No, 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 there's, there's five there's mics up there. here. There we go. Pass your mics down. And that itself will become a shamanic act. <laughs> the, um, so I will start off by, well, I'll ask you, John, first of all, because you actually did a show uh, about your own David Bowie obsession. So, at what point did David Bowie start to mean something to your existence in your life? Well, I missed his uh, laughing gnome period, uh, but the album, the original cover had the blue dots on it with his face, and uh, it had Space Oddity and the Signet Committee. It's, it's transitional album, really. So that was when I really got involved with Bowie. Um, my show was called I Was an Alien Sex God, Confessions of a Bowie Maniac, and it was really about uh, the, the danger that it's, that piece you read is very pertinent to. I don't think I was quite in the same league as your uh, God and the Devil Man, but uh, <laughs> in I Was an Alien Sex God, um, I look in the mirror when I'm tripping, uh, see David Bowie's face, and he says to me, uh, when you and I come together, the earth moves. Uh, and this set me on a deranged journey um, through the world of war on drugs and alien invasion and uh, the astral plane. So what, but that's, uh, I can't leave that before I move on to the rest of you. So on this journey through the astral plane, uh, what was it in particular about the work? Was it at the point of space oddity, some of the later work, things like Hunky Dory, you're dabbling yeah. with Nietzsche and ideas? And yeah, yeah, I, I think all those early albums were my core Bowie. I mean, I like all, all his work but I was obsessed until about Diamond Dogs, or mildly obsessed. You know, I built it up, of course, more in, in, in the show. Uh, but what really, I think, Bowie's genius was to take all kinds of esoteric and occult um, references and package it, mash it and mix it, and present it to you in a way that, like all great songwriters, you felt he was talking to you personally. That's what my show was about, and when we were talking earlier. I think so many Bowie fans felt they had a personal relationship with him. And that is the genius of any songwriter. Uh, and any writer who writes a love song 
wants you to say, oh, he must be talking about me and my girl or me and my boy. But um, with, with Bowie, he managed to say, he must be talking about me and my ritual magic. And I think that was his power for, for me. Well, there's a, there's a great line by Philip K. Dick when he was talking about uh, Blade Runner, which, of course, he never saw the completed result. But he said, the problem with Hollywood, and I think this could include now kind of all art, he said, it always wants to disturb the senses, but not disturb the mind. And what you're saying about Bowie is the fact that you may well be, the senses are disturbed by the beauty of the music, the fascination of the lyrics, but also you can't just leave it at that. You can't just place it on the turntable and go... A turntable, by the way, was a system of listening to music uh, that we had in the 70s. Um, Daisy, you uh, have most recently... The, well, the last time we saw each other was at a Robert Anton Wilson event. You were also uh, conceived backstage, uh, I believe, during a performance of uh, an adaptation of uh, The Illuminatus. The Illuminatus uh, trilogy, the 18-hour production that my father put on in Liverpool... And, uh, yeah, as my mum said, you know, well, it was 18 hours. There were some dull bits. So, yes, I was conceived backstage <laughs> at that production. So to be conceived, you know, again, Robert Anton Wilson, another fascinating thinker. In terms of your reaction also to things like Bowie, Bowie is, a, is an introduction to so many different ideas. You know, there are obviously elements of, of the occult. There are uh, references to Alistair Crowley. There are a lot of, as we've mentioned already, Nietzsche references. What, for you, was the starting point for uh, for Bowie. For Bowie, yeah, it's these, these certain characters act as a kind of gateway drug, don't they? And then you find yourself slipping and sliding with all the connections. And actually, I was 23, and I'd read Illuminatus for the first time, and then I discovered David Bowie. And I'm not much of a muso, really. But Bowie, just like John was saying, was speaking directly to me. Everything was linking with this ridiculous book, Illuminatus, which, if you don't know it, is an attempt to write a novel in which every single conspiracy theory is true. Um, so, you know, you can imagine what this was doing to my brain. And, I, I mean, in fact, I ended up um, in a loony bin with rainbow knickers on my head for important cosmic reasons. Uh, in fact, what I was attempting to do, you see, was to regulate the flow of kind of pronoid, um, these pronoid messages that were coming. You know, you're familiar with the concept of pronoia, that creeping sensation that everyone everywhere is out to help you. And uh, yeah, so I was, I was in this loony bin with rainbow knickers and all I'd managed to smuggle in, they'd taken all my Bowie tapes from me, but I'd managed to smuggle in the cassette tape insert for the greatest hits. And I was sort of making a few bob reading people's fortunes from the David Bowie cassette tape insert uh, in my rainbow knickers, yeah. So that's so what Bowie did to me. So I hadn't realised quite w how Jeremy Kyle this session was going to get <laughs> in terms of... Uh, well, this is... But what's intriguing as well is just how dangerous, the idea of art that is that dangerous, that you are seeing Bowie in the mirror and, and you're ready for some kind of sexual congress that is going to change the universe. You've got the rainbow knickers and various all manner. So, Holly, you've got a lot to try and top those anecdotes. Um, but I wanted to ask you about... Well, first of all, I will, I'm going to ask everyone this, but what your reaction to, to Bowie, when were you aware of him? You're the youngest on the panel, I suppose. It was a different period of Bowie when... Um, I'm a little bit scared to talk on this panel, to be honest, because, genuinely, I was quite obsessed with the film Labyrinth when I was little, watched it <laughs> over and over again, and thought, who is this strange man in the film? And that was pretty much all my knowledge of 
Bowie. I don't even know how to say his name, like Bowie or Bowie. I'm not really 100% sure, and I feel like I might get killed by the audience if I say it rhymes wrong. With, rhymes with Crowley. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I was obsessed with the film, um, I, and I know his songs because my dad used to play them all the time, but I didn't know who'd sung them. And to be, to be perfectly honest, when I really got to know him was, was when he died. Because suddenly I had lots and lots of other kind of artist friends and poet friends on Facebook saying, oh my God, the, like, the legend has died. Like he meant so much to me. And I was like, oh shit, like he should have meant so much to me. And I feel like an, an out of play. I was playing netball probably, like happily while you lot were listening to Bowie and getting very deep with his words. And I wasn't really. So now I've started to look him up post-death basically, if that makes sense. So you don't so Don't hate far, me, please don't hate me. No, 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 you're, but I think that's a fair enough thing, <laughs> thing because it, there is a generational thing, though I think also, interestingly, when you mentioned Labyrinth, when he died, there were so many ha people had different cultural links to him. For some yeah. people, he was that guy in the magical Jim Henson movie, you know, and then for other people they had, they were discovering him, considering he'd recorded nothing for, what, nine, nine years before the Next Day album? Yeah. Uh, so, for, yeah, for your generation. And look, he's gone mad in the mirror, she's got rainbow <laughs> pants on your head, you were happily playing netball, so <laughs> your generation's got away with it, you and your world. No, but I'm a poet, I'm not meant to be happy playing netball, I'm meant to be <laughs> very thoughtful. <laughs> okay, also, the, uh, you've been playing melancholy netball. Um, <laughs> Andrew, as uh, my favourite uh, anarchist steampunk um, and ritual magician, what was... What came first for you? Because this is something I want to know about ritual magic. You are, I would say, predominantly, it's about kind of uh, a lot of what you talk about is empirical, evidence-based. Yeah. You have fantastic songs about Charles Darwin. Yeah. You have fantastic songs about atheism as mm -hmm. well. But there is still space for ritual magic. So yeah. can you give us, not all of this audience may be au fait with ritual magic as yet until we really begin the ceremony. Okay. So <laughs> what... What is uh, Ritual Magic? So you know what Daisy did? That. Um, ritual Magic is essentially the, the practice of sending yourself insane uh, with a purpose. That's pretty much what it's for. Um, and everyone that's ever done it has done it in, in, in various degrees of luxury. So uh, Alistair Crowley uh, had the money to buy himself uh, a, a, a huge house on the banks of Loch Ness in order to do the, uh, the Abramelin, which is a six-month ritual in which you lead a monk-like existence to send yourself insane and uh, ultimately have contact with your holy guardian angel. I basically, I was a, I was a rational atheist, very much, you know, along your lines, big fan of the old Dawkins, and then uh, uh, became a massive fan of the work of Alan Moore and then became friends with Alan Moore. And uh, his notion of ritual magic seems so grounded. The fundamental notion is it's all happening in your brain, but you've no idea. It's all, sorry, it's all happening in your mind, but you've no idea how the, the huge territory that your mind expands to. Uh, so I started doing ritual magic uh, in a kind of, well, this looks fun. I'll see how this goes. And um, my initiation was uh, doing an exercise to... Uh, to look at a whole day as though the universe was desperately trying to tell me something. Uh, uh, you, 
and it doesn't mean it's going to, uh, but you look at, at absolutely everything. Why, why are there three of those things? Why is the number 23 over there? Why is the word up there rather than down? Uh, what happened to me was a man told me his name was Omen, uh, that the, the bus was full of, full of spirits, and he tried to hand me a Celtic cross that had 666 in the knotwork, because that was him, Omen 666, you know, like the film, Why Did My Mother Give Me This Name? Um, which to me seemed a little bit piss-taking of the universe when I was looking for a sign. <laughs> so I was like, oh shit, it worked. And, and a ton of other things happened. Um, a, uh, you know, a, a pendant of Ganesh that I had lost for six months appeared on the floor at the spot where I'd done an invocation to Ganesha. Uh, and that was the pendant of, of, of Ganesh that, that was the, Richard yeah, Dawkins had given you. It was the one well, that Dawkins it? had given me, yeah. Don't tell anyone, said, but I'm rather keen on elephant gods. <laughs> the day he told me never to talk to Alan. So, um, See, so, Alan yeah. is a very rational man. That's interesting. Alan Moore, I think, is... Because sometimes we've had him on the, on the Radio 4 Science Show, do Infinite Monkey, people go, how come you've had him on? He's, he's, he's a wizard, he's a magician. But he is the most fucking rational wizard you can he's, meet. He's rational because and also did 60s-level LSD for 10 years every day. So he has that as a basis. Well, he's a very bad lesson to the youth <laughs> because <laughs> he has whatever genetically, and I think it is definitely nature, not nurture, whatever Alan takes, do not believe, therefore, you're able to take it, even if you do have a long beard and your own <laughs> snake-based walking stick. Um, but he, his, uh, that idea of driving yourself insane, and, and I'll go to you again, John, and then to Daisy, and then Holly will... I want to talk a little bit about the importance of poetry and seeing that as a shamanic thing, but that, at what point... Because the pragmatic insanity... I mean, again, Philip K. Dick, there was a great line, I think it's in Vallis, something like that, where he says, uh, sometimes the only correct response to reality is to go insane. And certainly in the times that we're living in now, that does seem, you know... Very, very Boris uh, Johnson's our foreign minister. <laughs> he's That's not. He's not. Because I've created my own reality in my own <laughs> mind. And he's not. The world is getting less realistic day by day. That Magic is, is the only way we need to flee. There is very strong evidence I've heard from Jim Al-Khalili and others that uh, this is actually a spoof planet, <laughs> that this planet only exists as a kind of, like the equivalent of a hidden camera show for all the other sentient creatures in the universe. And every now and again they go, let's have a look at Earth. Fucking brilliant, brilliant. I don't know who writes this stuff, but it's very good. So, but that reaction to, in, in terms of your, did you have a moment, John, of, of thinking, ah, this is becoming less benevolent insanity now. Well, not, uh, not with Alien Sex God, because it, it had the virtue... Sorry, can we just repeat that again? <laughs> that, to me, is the favourite reply ever. Was there a point where he felt the insanity was, was not benevolent? It not was not in sex I God. was an Alien Sex God. <laughs> it was saved by humour. You know, uh, it, and humour is often a saving grace. If you can't also see that you are a fool, uh, then you might yeah. believe you are a magus uh, too quickly. Um, what happened, though, was uh, in, in that show, Alien Sex God, I playfully created a kind of literary shaman persona called John Crow, and then thought, he's interesting to work with. You know, I can push the boat out with him, go places I might otherwise fear to tread. And so I started doing that, and as soon as I started working with John Crow, I seemed to attract this spirit of a medieval sex worker who was licensed by the church and buried in a graveyard five minutes from where I lived, which had just been dug up to build the Jubilee Line extension. So um, that was quite a shock, especially when I discovered that this vision was all real. So 
in the heady days leading up to the millennium, especially in 1999, I think I was in danger of crossing that line and thinking, I'm it. You know, I, I bring this new age into the world and it's all happening through me. I was lucky that I had a, a, a sex worker as my muse, even a medieval one, because she was very playful and good at pulling the rug out from under my feet when I got too messianic. So I, I would advise anyone, you know, it's not to say th that it isn't in one sense deadly serious, and it, it's certainly effective. Uh, something yeah. uh, you were saying, Andrew, about partly it is patterning. It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily being in a dark room, you know, picking fluff out of your navel to do magic tricks. It, it, that's valid too. But we do a lot of magic at Crossbones, this graveyard, totally publicly. And what we're really doing is creating new patterns. So the number 23 is probably something that us three yeah, have yeah. had and, and many others have had experience of. But there are many ways in which patterns start being created. And so at Crossbones, from being this old tip of a work site, we've turned it into kind of sacred ground. And that's been done through the power of believing it's so. But uh, I was, we were saying earlier, I think one of the great, uh, again, protectors beside humor is the great concept, as if. In other words, I don't literally have to prove to you or Dr. Brian Cox that all the magic I do is literally real. If it works for me, if it's working for me and hopefully for others too, that's all it needs. If it is as if. And um, if, it you're, if you're building a bridge, don't use magic. If you're writing a play, <laughs> definitely use magic. That's true. That's true. Sometimes equations are useful. Yeah, they, they are. really they yeah. are. But of course, you talked about ritual magic and Crowley yeah. being quite a rich person who could give himself space to go mad. Austin Osmond Spare, who's another great chaos music magician, <laughs> one of the great things about Spare is if you think you can use magic to get rich and powerful, uh, Spare died in pretty much abject poverty. Uh, oh, so I, I, w I went to the London Occult Conference uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, trust me, it's not full of success stories. <laughs> um, and, Cro and Crowley never got off smack. You know, it, it, ma magic does certain things. Magic achieves certain goals. Uh, magic can make you a better person. It very rarely makes you something you didn't have the capacity to not be before you were born, you know. The school's career officer isn't going <laughs> to... Yeah. So, Holly, in terms of your... Uh, as, as a very creative person, and your... I know this is, this is not normally the kind of poetry panel you end up on, is it? No, no, um, it's not. When you're, when you're creating your work, how much in terms of the way that you're trying to manipulate an audience, are you aware of that? Are you aware of I'm the not, potency? I'm not trying to manipulate an audience. You, you are, aren't you? There is still manipulation because well, you want them to react and you want them to be, you know, when you, uh, the, the first time I was really aware of your work was that you have a very powerful poem you wrote about kind of public breastfeeding and that had a, a tremendous effect on a large number of people. That yeah, was a way of... Yeah, I don't know. I guess if that was written to like for an audience, but that was written on a toilet while my daughter was sleeping and I was crying about feeling embarrassed to breastfeed. So it, it I don't think I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't write normally in order to affect an audience in any way. I just choose certain ones to read out, I think. 
So is, in terms of creativity, because you, you, you've got a whole book which is a series of uh, poems and, and also prose pieces which was based around your pregnancy and all the things, yeah. many of the things that you weren't expecting. So for you, that act of art, that act of creativity is kind of, perhaps in that book, like an act of trepanning that you're just there going, right, I need to get these things out of my <laughs> yeah, head exactly. just to stay sane. So well, the rest of the couch, we accept her insane. You have remained <laughs> sane through the act of art. Art and netball. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think so. I was just thinking that when everybody was talking, actually, that this is a... a well, these are worlds that I, I don't really know about at all. I don't think, or not, not physically or not yet. Um, and I was thinking with poetry, a lot of people say that the poetry kind of brings out that magic or is that creativity and that spark. But to me, the, it's kind of the opposite. Like poetry, yeah, like you say, it's kept me grounded and it's kept me sane and it's stopped me getting into fights, I think. It's stopped me losing my temper. It's stopped me going insane about the world. Like you're saying at the moment with politics, but I, I quite like the practical side of life. Like somebody said that I, it was a bit like Ron Seal, Quick Dry and Woodstain. Like, my poetry does exactly what it says on the tin. And I feel it's about, it's kind of like that. It's, it's the opposite of the sort of majestic, mystical style of writing. I feel like it totally is a way that I can not figure out the world, but get it slightly more practical than I feel it is, if that makes any sense yeah. at all. Yeah. Well, that's what I wondered, Daisy, about the idea where, thinking of some of the work you've been involved, that are, do you think artists... Are they trying to understand the world? Or with, with Bowie, with all, so many of the kind of explorations that he did, especially in the 60s, and, and continued to do that for the rest of his life, actually, always exploring. If you look at his top 100 books, there's a fantastic thing, uh, a list, and it's on so many different subjects, and there's, there's kind of Colin Wilson there and symbols in art, that an artist is, are they trying to understand the world or are they trying to remake the world, at least in their own mind, into the world they would like it to be? Is it a tremendously kind of somewhere between being a, you know, a narcissist and trying to be an amateur deity? What sort of question is that? Um, well, I think there's, I mean, there's every different type of, uh, of artist, isn't there? But I think it comes back, if you're going to compare art and magic, then there's a sort of maxim that the intent is everything. So if you're creating art to entertain, then good for you, or make money, or whatever else it is. But if you... In fact, when we were doing Cosmic Trigger, I was lucky enough to, to meet Alan Moore and he came and played the world's most intelligent computer called Fuck Up uh, as a hologram. And uh, he was brilliant. Anyway, and he, uh, he kind of really steered our weird ship because all I knew was this was a yes and production. We were just going to say yes and what's next to anything that happened. And whoever presented themselves saying, oh yeah, I can build you... A, you know, a, a, a kind of an enormous great computer that can fly. Brilliant, fantastic, bring him in. He looks like a piss bloke that you met in Liverpool. Yeah, he is, but he'll probably be fine. And he was. And, you know, and this, this was how it, the whole thing came together. It was a yes and production, but it was reaching that hairy bit where you thought, God Christ, how long can this go on being a yes and production? And it was just when I was feeling the most de kind of depleted about it that the first thing that happened was one of Jimmy Corti's enormous smiley face riot masks arrived at my door. I hadn't even let anyone know that we were doing it, but here, here was this smiley face. I thought, well, Christ, if that isn't a sign, I don't know what is. 
And, uh, and, and then I got the opportunity to go and interview Alan Moore, and he explained to me what was new to me, this concept that art and magic are the same thing. But he said, but listen, there's high art and there's high magic, and that is when you don't know what the fuck you're doing, but you just proceed as if everything is a message from the universe. So that was the principle on which we attempted to uh, create the Cosmic Trigger, which was part of a Find the Others festival. And this was because Timothy Leary had been asked. He'd, someone had said to him, but Dr. Leary, what do you do after you've turned in, tuned it, whatever it was, turned on, tuned in and dropped out? And he said, find the others. And it became apparent that's what the working was. We kind of knew by this point, this is more than a play, this is a working of some kind. But we novices, we didn't know what we were getting into at all. We were finding the others, that's what was going on. And I think that's, that's you know, it's sparked all sorts of things none of us could have anticipated at all. Can I ask, and I don't want to you know, bring up, just talk about your, your, your dad's work because you are an artist in your own right, but being brought up by someone who, as far as I can see, if you don't know, by the way, Daisy's father's Ken Campbell, who created some incredible pieces of work. Um, and uh, I wondered what uh, his kind of, you know, his yes and approach, reading some people's memoirs, some of the, including people like Bill Drummond, just being taught that um, you just, you ring someone up and you'll find out. You, you'll be able to get, you can probably, in about three goes, you'll be able to get, if you, if you want Dorothy L'Amour to appear in your production in Southport, there's a way. Within three phone calls, he had Yoko Ono on the phone. That was, that was what Bill Drummond learned from my dad, yeah. Get on the phone. Yeah. And, and that act of, again, the importance of art, when you look at a lot of what's being made now and a lot of things that are being checked in terms of demographics. In fact, when I'll ask John about this, with David Bowie, we were talking before about he'd had... It took quite a while for him to then have that breakthrough success. And I wonder now whether artists would get as many opportunities. You know, the, 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 he, the, the mod thing didn't really kind of work out, and then the hippie thing, and the, that wasn't... And then, then you get hunky-dory. And from that point onwards, you then end up with a decade of incredible reinvention and uh, just stylistically and in the number of different ideas that are dealt with. If you look at hunky-dory, and then you compare that to low, and then you compare that to scary monsters, and it, it's quite remarkable kind of thing. Are we... Do you think art is more limited now that it's harder, even though people have access to so many different methods of being able to spread their ideas? I think when you get to my age, you, you, you hesitate to, to make generalizations about any particular age. Uh, certainly, I feel that I, I was very fortunate to grow up in a time where people were really encouraged to experiment. You know, you didn't actually go to university to get a job. You, oh, well, a lot of us didn't. We went to do magic or, or something, you know, in a, in, in a comfortable environment. Uh, Bowie, yeah, certainly was in a, at a time where, uh, you know, mu rock music had just gone from being dirty rock, and Bowie loved that, of course. He celebrated Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and gave their careers new life. I think Bowie wasn't um, a, a rock and roll animal like those guys. They were, the, in a way, the real thing of rock and roll. Bowie was somehow always more contrived in a way, but that isn't to put him down, I think that contrivance and self-consciousness, which we saw massively on Blackstar, you know, a guy writing an album to be played, especially when you've heard he's died. Um, you know, I think that was extraordinary. He, he, had a, he had a vision of his life. And, you know, when being a rock star 
He could have carried on being Ziggy. He could have toured for years, you know, doing old numbers and albums that sounded like Ziggy Stardust. But he very quickly moved on and he was very willing to work with other people, of course. He, he, Bowie was never a, a solo performer. He, you know, his work with Eno and Carlos Alomar, many really great mus musicians, and he had that ability to be both very controlling and at the same time to be extraordinarily gener generous in allowing other artists to create. And that is something quite remarkable, I think, about Bowie, that he, he gives other artists room to co-create with him, which is another magical act. It's group magic. Again, because, Andrew, you're the one who, who uh, I, I, you know, I, I know best. I hadn't realised, actually, it was, it's not that long that you've really been involved in ritual magic. How has that changed your art, how, your creativity? Uh, it's, so stand-up is, is my main uh, artistic expression, and it's entirely changed how I go about writing. Um, it's, it's made it more ri literally ritualistic. Um, but also it's changed how I experience the, the act of, of, of performing. You were talking about this kind of earlier, about manipulating an audience. I think so much more in terms now of the energy an audience have, and you know this intuitively. You go out in front of a room. If a room, if, if I do say a jonglers, and for us that's, the, that's kind of the McDonald's, the opposite of the Latitude Festival. It's the McDonald's of, of comedy. But I love it because... It's a room full of 200, 300, 400, 500 people who want to have a laugh and a night out. And they might not particularly listen, but there's an energy in the room that you can conduct and then use. And my stand-up is surreal, absurdist, odd, offbeat. Um, but I have learned to use that energy through magical thinking. If an audience wants a night out, I'll give them a night out. They won't necessarily want what I <laughs> have to give them. But there's a... There's there's energy there to use. So, yeah, and also po probably after doing magic, what I've done is expanded into a, a band that's now got its own, its own thing, its own engine, its own success. And I'm writing, I'm expanding. Like, so you're sort of asking, is it, is it difficult for all artists now to, to reinvent themselves in the way that Bowie did? I well, think not that it's difficult to reinvent, but it's difficult perhaps when, uh, to get a broader audience. Oh yes, yeah. but yeah, but I don't think a broad audience is necessary because I think uh, if you can if you can genuinely talk to people, few artists ever spoke to such a large audience in the way Bowie did. Bon Jovi didn't talk, didn't <laughs> affect an audience the way he did. You know, even Metallica, my favourite band, didn't. You know, I think it's better to to work harder at your art and make it more more an expression of who you are, and if you make it good enough, people will come to you, then the internet now gives that an audience. So it's almost the other way. It's, it's easier for someone to affect an audience the way Bowie did than ever before. You mentioned Bon Jovi, here's something. Did you know that Daryl Hall from Hall & Oates wrote an album entirely based around the work of Alistair Crowley? And uh, no. John Oates nearly uh, went, I don't think I can work with you anymore. <laughs> I just never thought Hall and Oates are really. I mean, you think Led Zeppelin, yeah, Alistair Crowley, caught, yeah, we, we yeah. saw those links. You know, a lot of the kind of the rock bands, and certainly by the time, you know, anything that maybe even but gets. Every, everyone, but but Daryl Hall. But you Crow, think, Crowley's but the Michael McIntyre of occultism. Everyone knows Crowley. You can go into Waterstones and buy him. You can, and this is the thing with, with occultism in popular culture. You can pick up a book and do a 
thing about it. You know, you, the the dude from Blur did a thing. Uh, you know, did a, a, an occult <laughs> opera. It doesn't mean they're occultists. It doesn't mean they have any deep knowledge. They're not Austin Osman Spare. They're picking up a book and like station to in, when Bowie was doing Station to Station, he he had two books and a massive lot of coke. It's not a cult. It's not particularly significant in his understanding of occultism. It's 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 significant in his projection of his personality through the bits and pieces of occultism that he picked up. Do you think? How aware do you think the audience were of? Because now it's written about a great deal. But when people listening to Hunky Dory, I mean, I, I had no idea uh, when I was nine. Uh, about the Nietzschean ramifications <laughs> of Hunky Dory, and maybe that did lead to my you. brief. You know, I have to admit, every time I arrive at Victoria Station, I really have to control this arm. <laughs> it's quite a kind of Doctor Strange love thing that's going on. But that—that's an interesting. I wonder with things like music, where the lyrics can often be totally, really unobserved. They're heard, but so I know somebody who's really right-wing and they love the Manic Street Preachers, but they fucking hate libraries. And I think it's really one of the Manic Street Preachers' things is libraries. <laughs> they made that really clear, the library element. But they go, oh, I don't think so. I don't yeah. think that's what that song's about. I think you're showing your youth, though. You were nine. I was 17. And uh, I think a lot of people, when they heard Hunky Dory, the references were really familiar. I think when he died, I heard lots of people saying, oh, Bowie introduced the world to uh, Crowley and Burroughs and, you know, Genet and... All that, that was very in the zeitgeist. They it, were about. They, they were the counterculture. What Bowie did ultimately was bring them into the mainstream. I mean, you know, because he was such a successful pop performer. He was a pop performer who could somehow get hold of that stuff. So certainly when I heard all those Crowley references and the kind of Buddhism in Hunky Dory, the Nietzscheanism, I think that was what a lot of people were talking about at the time. What about Holly? Uh, do, do you find... Uh, I love the expression on your face, by the way, through the whole... What I was is just going on? <laughs> no, what right. is this about? I just okay. want to play melancholy <laughs> netball. This <laughs> is what you are now. This is what you <laughs> are. You know oh, that. Yeah. You're not Welcome. allowed to leave this now, this new cult. <laughs> no, I was just thinking, does it, did everyone get his references? Because when you're talking no. about that, about music with words that people don't know, maybe I was one of those people. Like I used to sit and listen to certain lyrics, and I used to print, print out the lyrics of my favourite bands and really concentrate on the words. But other people that I wasn't as bothered about, I would go and dance, and every now and again I'd sort of hear what they were saying. But it was really the beat and the, the rhythm and the... The, the sounds of it that I was listening to. So probably I, I could have been one of these people that were hearing words, but were too busy getting a drink and dancing to the music. Who w was there anyone? Who who of the artists that you kind of growing up the the, <laughs> pe the, the people who, who would be the ones you think that that changed my mind about certain <laughs> things, whatever <laughs> those things may have been. I think the the one person that I remember was Barry Maguire. So I was listening to a lot of pop stuff, and I don't really like to admit it in a crowd at Latitude Festival and being a poet with, with poets who were going to chop my head off for saying it. So mainly, I was probably listening to people like M&A talking about how they had a little something for me, and I was trying to work out what that little something was. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I've worked it out now. But um, yeah, the <laughs> probably the one that changed me most was Barry Maguire's Eve of Destruction. Oh. And that song, my dad played, he had, a, he had like a Woodstock 
tape, basically, and I stole it. And I used to play that on repeat over and over and over again. But I'm more about simple lyrics, and I guess maybe that's why with Bowie, it's not, it's not struck with me as much because it wasn't so straightforward the way that he talked about stuff. And I'm not, I'm, like, I'm not a stupid person, I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to act like I'm some inane person that doesn't think about stuff, but, but I quite like that, the Barry Maguire like talking about <laughs> soldiers and bombs and voting age, and like, I'm, I, I quite like those factual things being dished out, basically. So I guess the kind of dreamy qualities of Bowie, maybe, maybe that's why I didn't relate to it so much, maybe. I think I think it is just it may well just be a generational thing as well though because yeah. you did the um, Daisy. What about I, I was I was trying to think in terms of as if art can be an act of shamanism. I'm not sure if we've even de defined shamanism yet, but if it can be, is pop music the most potent way of doing it? I was thinking that you know the the number of books that I've read which are about the evil of rock music. There's a fantastic one called Pop Goes the Gospel, uh, which manages to misquote almost every single person that uh, <laughs> indeed says one of the most evil songs by the Manic Street Preachers is one that's called My Design, and which doesn't exist. And, uh, <laughs> but, and, and there's a, a point where, for instance, Cliff Richard in 1973, I think, spoke out against David Bowie. This was... So if you are trying to use art to you know, to 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 create that, that level of, well, I suppose it is a form. It can be a form of religion. When you see everyone like bouncing up and down to slaves earlier, and the lovely man who was asked to go on stage and body pop with them, and uh, body popped with a little bit. You know that when you go, he's overdoing it at the beginning. He's going to be really tired by the end, and he was. But anyway, <laughs> it was it was a lovely thing to watch this this impromptu body popping. But is is music? You think the most potent way of using of doing this? <laughs> You're asking probably the least muso person on the panel um, whether music is the best way. I mean, you certainly get a bigger crowd than fringe theatre, that's for sure. But um, <laughs> is it the best way? It's not the best way for me. I, I was sort of reflecting on what John was saying about actually how these references and these threads, as I think of them, were around when Hunky Dory was coming out because I've sort of started thinking of counterculture or DIY culture or whatever you want to call it as... Um, with the metaphor of mycelium, you know, the kind of, the, the threads that have to crisscross beneath the ground and only at the point where enough of them cross will there suddenly appear a mushroom. And if you're only able to see the kind of surface reality, you'll just see, oh, right, a mushroom's just popped up from nowhere. Um, but actually, it's fed upon so much endeavor that people can't see and so many networks of so many extraordinary individuals. And yes, maybe music is most likely to mushroom in the way that makes it impact on culture, you know, to that extent. But, you know, only because they came and saw my weird show the other week or because they were at Crossbones Graveyard with John doing a vigil, you know. It's because of those cultural connections that these mushrooms appear. But the muggles, they only see the mushrooms, you see. <laughs> so what is, we're just mentioning the, 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 the vigil at the crossbones. So when you are, uh, John, creating one of these acts, what does that uh, entail? And what are you hoping those who are part of it will get from it? And, how, and I wonder if you can link that again to your influence from those, those kind of those seeds that, that, that Bowie gave you. Okay, so... I said when I started writing this, because it started as a literary work, very definitely. The weird thing was, when John Crow kind of met the goose, his muse, 
he started writing verse. Now, I hadn't written poetry since I was 17. I was 44 when I started writing the Southwark Mysteries, and I wrote it all in verse. The thing about verse, including old ballad forms or right through to rap, because you've got rhythm and rhyme, it's always leading your mind to places you don't know it's going to go. So right at the heart of this very long poem I wrote on the 23rd of November 1996 was a reference to Crossbones. And when I realized that I hadn't gone mad, well, perhaps I had, but it was a madness deeply grounded, they really had dug this place up to build the Jubilee Line. So it seemed that the whole work I was engaged in had to break out of the stage. I mean, it did end up getting performed in Shakespeare's Globe and Southwark Cathedral, but its real heart was Crossbones. So what it's done there, we've, um, we started every Halloween having an event, and the idea was to declare it as a sacred place for outcasts. So that meant we couldn't be too holy. We were, after all, honoring medieval sex workers, among other things, uh, which was great because it lightens people up. Freeze, everybody's got spiritual dimensions, but a lot of them are very repressed by uh, existing ideas of religion. So I think that's something, for me, that was very important. And, you know, I've ended up even working with the church, I and mean, we've performed in Southwark Cathedral, but it's uh, having this sense of the goose, of this spirit, has given me something to represent when I met the Dean of Southwark Cathedral. Uh, and I, although I could be playful with it, I wasn't claiming to start an alternative religion. And in fact, that's something I've had to say recently. I've got an Oxford professor has got a book coming out about me w in which she says, I've started a new religion. And it's not something I actually agree with. Uh, it's certainly not my intention, you know, because what interests me is the challenge to people. It's the idea of saying the outcast, the outsider, the edge is where we find creativity. And that is worthy of honor. And uh, The opposite of religion. In, in many ways, it's the opposite, yeah. So is it, a lot of what we're talking about is really be committed to your dicking around. Yes. Because there's yes. that great Kurt Vonnegut, I think, what does it say? We're here to dick around and don't let anyone tell you anything else. <laughs> and that thing where you just go, there's dicking around, which is kind of just flippant dicking around. Then you go, I'm really committed to my dicking yes. around. I mean, you, Andrew, as a steampunk and a comedian, you are, you're very good. And dicking you know, around we, is everything. Spent, I had to go to an event the other day and they said, what's your profession? And I went, I have no idea. I've been doing something for 25 years, but I don't fucking know what it is. But I've had a lot of fun doing it and I've realized it's dicking around yeah and that but the problem of dicking around like with John talking about about the, the ideas you is very quickly people are gonna go that th they it's dealing with the possible mockery as well because I think is there a sense that when you are able to create those things that people are almost there's an envy to the joy that might come out of it. Therefore, they're going to have to go, the best thing to do is mock them and crush this, this joy. that I, It's a bit like, you know, if you're laughing on your own on public transport and people look on you and go, who's the freak? He must but be that's, killed. That's why, that's why people hate comedians they don't like. That thing, and you know this, people go, oh, friends will say, oh, I hate, I hate that guy. And you go, no, I know him. He's funny. That's not an issue. There's a, there's a guy who I know. Uh, uh, who, who uh, works, he's, he's regular in my local, and he, he hates me, and I couldn't work out why he hated me. And it turns out why he hates me is because he'd seen me doing stand-up and thought I was shit. And he t he's taken against me so personally, so unbelievably personally. For, for about two years, I'm like, what's that guy's fucking problem? And I sat down with someone who was a fan of mine, and went, oh, this is Andrew, he's a comedian. I went, yeah, I know. And I went, 
What? What's your issue, man? And he literally went, "You're not fucking funny, mate." For two years, but that thing of that jealousy, of the dicking around, it's like. But I think what you have to do if you're an entertainer in any way is, you know, there's that that trick you can do to get your internet to work better at the other end of your house, where you put some foil behind the the aerial, and you put a bit of foil around the aerial, you create a para parabolic curve on foil, and it makes it boosts your signal to the rest of your house, right? I had and no idea about this. That idea uh, this was going to turn into a handy hint. Top tip. Um, <laughs> as an entertainer, that's what you have to do. You have to put the bit of foil, and you have to you have to work out. You have to direct it. At, if you're in front of people for a reason, you have to justify why you're on stage and not in the crowd. None of this can come from a punk background, from being in punk bands. You know. You, by all means, get up on stage and do your band, but if it's shit, I'm probably not going to listen. You have to have a, So the dicking around has to, it has to be your best dicking around. Yeah. <laughs> it can't be that self-indulgent. It can be self-indulgent, but not that self It can be enjoyably self-indulgent, you know. The, uh, I'll ask you just two more. To, well, I wanted, Holly, I was going to come to you in terms of one of the things which I suppose becomes mystical to people who might not be, whether they're writing plays, poetry, creating any form of art, is people always kind of go, where do you get your ideas from? <laughs> Why do you think people become so upset? Because I, I did a little bit of a Stockhausen, apparently, uh, for a brief time, believed he received his musical education from the Sirius star system, which is a good <laughs> choice Same. if Same. you're going to go with that. Ditto. Same. So you've the serious star system. That's I have it. noticed that a lot of your <laughs> your iambic pentameter sometimes becomes a, a lot looser and more Stockhausian. But what is it about? What? Why? Why is there an obsession with? I don't. Uh, I've always, you know, I've always wondered about that question. So I'm quite glad you've said it. So I feel I don't need to answer it anymore, <laughs> because I do always get asked that. Where do you get ideas from? I think well. Everything, and then if I say everything, I feel like a twat, so I don't say that. Or if I then I start saying really stupid stuff like, Oh, the newspapers, or Oh, if I read, I get ideas, or Oh, from my daughter's smile, or I end up saying really silly things. Not, not that that's a silly thing, I do get ideas from my daughter's smile, but um, but yeah, I was like, Well, from, from here, I guess, from anything, don't you? You get ideas from anything. Maybe she just get really aggressive and go, from rainbows, from fucking rainbows. <laughs> that was the first it's always from the fucking <laughs> rainbows. The first poem I ever wrote was about rainbows when I was seven. Uh, so the, so was maybe it was. Yeah. There was a morphic resonance Channel moment there that possibly involving rainbows. But I think if, you get, <laughs> if you get artists together, they start sounding like mystics, basically. You know, oh, yeah. that whole thing of where your ideas come from, there's bizarre synchronicity happened there. Yeah. And then, you know, I discovered that the structure of this is similar to that. And then I, did I invoke that character or did I just dream them up? You know, it's, it's very mm. similar. And that's why that parallel is, is so intriguing to explore, really. <laughs> I think I'm a very practical artist. We don't really have conversations like that. I feel like I'm missing out now from being <laughs> on this panel. And I think when you us. said when you, <laughs> when you said about someone on the train smiling, I saw someone la la laughing to themselves the other day, and I thought, how exciting! And everyone was looking at them smiling. So maybe I was on the happy carriage and you were on the like miserable fuckers carriage or We've something. Never been on that. It is the way that I laugh. I laugh. <laughs> in a, it's also in a slightly <laughs> evil way. You see, I think that, <laughs> and I stare at one or two of them. So I've, I've probably just got to. In, in, I was just thinking about an old thing Rick Mayall did, but it looked too evil. Um, so we've. I, I, I wanted to ask about kind of gender and Bowie as well, but I don't think we have time because. Well, the final thing I wanted to ask then is in the. Uh, 
Now, 21st century, in terms of virtual world, I wondered, because it's very, people often get asked, who's going to be the new David Bowie? And I think that actually now we live in a different culture, the, the idea that someone is going to replicate that kind of career. But I wonder, in terms of the, the new ways that we have with the media and the new th way that you can invent things, where is it going to be within uh, more of a virtual world that you can do these things? I mean, a lot of those kind of games, the games of reinvention, which can now actually involve what appears to be very physical reinvention. I, so I'm a transvestite. I'm off duty today, but whatever, go over it. And, um, but, uh, no, and I've, and I've I explored gender a lot in, in what I do. Bowie's gender stuff was really important. People are doing that in culture massively themselves. The, as far as his gender stuff is concerned, teenagers are rocking that shit. Um, they're, they're inventing themselves and finding other people who are pushing that further. And um, yeah, I, it's that thing of, with I'm a metalhead, that's my background, that's my world. People go, who's gonna be the next Metallica is what we've said for the last 25 years. There's never gonna be one, but it doesn't matter because people are still in, in smaller units making great art. And I think people are, people are taking what, what, what you know, the biggest thing for me is, is, is gender stuff. People are taking that and, and exploring it in their own lives and pushing it to a degree that, that he would never have dreamed would be possible among hundreds of thousands of people around the country on their own without even taking a, 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 a leaf from, from a celebrity, but from peers online. I think the gender thing is really interesting because it, it's maintained some of the transgressive elements. I think one of the interesting things, and it's a double-edged sword, is how the counterculture got really mainstreamed. <coughs> I really knew that had happened when I saw Venus in Furs used in a car ad. Oh, I mean, God. Venus in Furs, for those who don't know it, The Velvet Underground was a superbly transgressive song, all about sadomasochism with screeching viola all the way through it. And when that's used to sell a car, it's a double-edged thing. I mean, this, in one way, it is renewing the culture. It's making the culture more tolerant, more open, and I think that is what is happening. In terms of the next big thing, it probably isn't going to be music. As you say, it, the many small things which are equally yeah. valid. And uh, Daisy and I work in fringe theatre, you work in poetry. So we know a small room can be amazingly uh, creative. But uh, for the big thing, I think you're right. I think it will be more in virtual reality gaming. That those kind of areas which, where there is the buzz at the moment. I, I think there's a real fascination with anyone who appears at least to, and I'm going to use another magical term, to sort of alchemically fuse their art and their life. And Bowie's an example of someone who did that. And I think any artist who can achieve that, uh, pull off that trick, make themselves a myth, um, they may not be you know, as successful in the worldly sense as Bowie, but they've achieved some kind of high place in the art magic thing. <laughs> I, I wondered also in, in terms of, for I, I went to a Doctor Who uh, convention last year for my son and um, <laughs> it was, uh, and I, I was chatting to some people there and what, was, what seems to me still great about Doctor Who is it still works for younger odd kids. It is 
a place where it's kind of this gateway thing which says, do you know what, I'm going to find other kids who like Doc 2, and if the kids who are bullying me don't like Doc 2, then they don't even really count. And in the same way, I think with Bowie, there was something that says you are allowed to be this different. This is a way of, and I know there's, there's various other versions in pop and rock, but he seems to me, in terms of both his longevity and level of fame to have given to a lot of different people. When you saw the day that he died and you saw the kind of things people were putting on YouTube, there's a wonderful thing of David McCormick, the brilliant singer uh, and, 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 and writer, uh, David McCormick, just walking down the street just uh, um, in, in, in London, just singing Bowie into his phone and a kind of level of, of, of freedom for, for him as, you know, as, as a gay artist, for instance. That is something, and I wonder, for, for you, anyone here, actually, that that importance of still making sure that the outsider can be celebrated mm. and it can be uh, to make sure that everything doesn't just become kind of car commercial land. I, 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 for me, uh, the biggest, the most important thing in my career is going in front of very normal people. I supported the Kaiser Chiefs on Monday, <laughs> um, doing yeah, doing my old, old ball stand up, and that thing of representing outside of culture to a mainstream audience has always been a really important part of what of what I do and and it's 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 easy to be a niche artist um, it's it's easy to plow your own furry to, to your own audience it's it's important to go <laughs> to you know take a room full of a hundred people and say there might be one person and he really gets this therefore it's important I speak to that hundred um, I don't know, I was just thinking, I, f I feel like sometimes we overplay this idea of the outsider in art, because I feel like a lot of the times if I go into do kind of, I don't know, poetry workshops in schools, for example, I do a lot, and a l like most of the teenagers talk about being an outsider, probably about 95% of them feel like they're the outsider, and I felt like I was the outsider, even on the netball team, I felt like <laughs> I was the outsider, whereas I think in like a... American film of a high school, I would have probably not been. I would have been the one that was totally comfortable and into like fucking inane pop music and didn't need anything like that, but it's not true. I just think that <laughs> everyone has an aspect of their personality which is outside of the like mainstream. So maybe that's why Bowie, uh, Bowie, <laughs> Bowie shit, um, <laughs> appealed to so many people because everyone does. I think it doesn't. And the idea, like, the outsider is, like, the oddball is the... We've got this... I, th I think a lot of it still comes from, like, sort of mainstream film and things. Because, I, yeah. yeah, I just feel like every... Probably every single person I've ever met feels like now or at some point, or especially as a teenager, I felt like they were the outsider. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know anybody that didn't feel like they were the outsider. But it's especially as a teenager, Even the fucking head that. cheerleader probably feels like she's the outsider. In but that's really <laughs> important, isn't it? Because that's how yeah. you, you get to be your own person, partly, yeah. by rejecting something of your parents' generation. Some of us yeah, do it something. big time and some do it in yeah. a small way, but I think it's valid. That's why I hate I don't want to stereotype club. who the outsider is as well. You can't stereotype that this person's no, an outsider right. and this person's well, like a mainstream pop person. Maybe that was a wrong term. <laughs> then what I meant more was that you don't have to keep everything in because I think there is a culture where you yeah. kind of, the, the worry of, so it's not, outsider might be the wrong term, but that sometimes your wonky thoughts that you might think, I better not say that in public. And I think you are, the moment you're able to go on stage, you have a license to go, well, yeah. because we're meant to be fools, we can talk about things which <laughs> you wouldn't normally 
actually say in a social situation, which I now do say in a social situation, and my <laughs> wife's asked me to stop going to parties <laughs> with her, and that's entirely true. And, um, but I was going to say that bit about the outsiders in Hollywood. Breakfast Club, the fucking end of that film, where <laughs> Ali Sheedy is told, do you know what, Ali? Well, you, ha you know, you could have a much happier life. Stop being a goth and wearing that dirty jumper. Why not wear a pretty white dress? And goth. that's going to be a fucking happy ending. Goths, al <laughs> goths always get fixed in narratives. If there's a goth in a narrative, they always end up wearing pastels. Cure always. the goth! <laughs> that's the one message that Bowie... No, that's not the message Bowie had, is it? Girl with a dragon tattoo. She takes all her makeup and spikes off to be normalised to the narrative. It always happens. Um, so, the, I, I didn't, we didn't use any of the notes in the end that I, I was going to use. Uh, thank you very much for coming down. Thanks very much for listening to that act of possible shamanism. We had to cut the audience sing-along of Starman for copyright reasons. And uh, hopefully we'll do more of these panels in the future. Bye-bye. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, all of these are free. But if you would like to donate so that we can keep making our full-length versions of the book shambles, Josie Robbins book shambles, then please go to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles and go and click on the Patreon link and then we can keep making as many of these as possible and we're having a lovely time doing them. Hope you like listening to them really.